Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering six conversations from episode 43, our Career Week interviews with Agent Diagnostics CEO Rachel Zayas and Novo Nordisk International Vice President Michelle Long. This conversation consists of the first part of my interview with Agent Diagnostics CEO Rachel Zayas. While we originally planned for the interview to be almost entirely about fundraising and what it takes to win new venture competitions, it didn't quite turn out that way. This first segment starts with a question about fundraising, but quickly refocuses on Rachel's product development process and the clinical trial work she's doing in preparation for market. Along the way, she describes her thinking and designing her basic trial specifications and the sequential steps she has taken toward the 2000 patient study that will be her pivotal effort in obtaining approval and coming to market. We each think we know a lot about the jobs we do, or at least I hope we do, but we know far less about other jobs we might find intriguing and valuable and exactly what makes the people with whom we interact good at what they do. These interviews with Rachel Zayas and Michelle Long provide the kind of in-depth view into other career possibilities that most of us rarely encounter in everyday life. I'm not looking for a job in either of these situations, but I feel I learned a tremendous amount from both of them. I'm confident you will as well. So just sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. And when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Most of this conversation is going to be about fundraising and pitching and what our listeners who are nascent or early stage entrepreneurs or think maybe they want to be entrepreneurs can learn from your experience. But first, just take a couple of minutes and at a very high level, tell us how Agents is doing, what you've been up to. Rachel Zayas. Yes. So we have multiple clinical trial sites. We are recruiting for a 500 patient study. We also uh, are, are conducting sequencing with Walter Reed Military Center and the American Genome Center. So that is an exciting collaboration. And we have some new hires on the team that will be coming with us to the American Association for Study of Liver Disease. They will be starting in just a couple weeks. So exciting new team members and lots of fundraising. Um, Once you start fundraising as a founder, you never stop. So that's just part of the daily uh, and and weekly grind. So without getting overly personal, I will tell you, I will tell our listeners that the fact that ASLD is in Boston means you get to go home, huh? It is. Not where you're living now, but home, 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 home. Yes. I, I grew up there, born and raised in, in Cambridge, Mass, down, down the street from the Human Genome Project, which is why I wanted to go into genetics in the first place. It, it, it'll be nice to be home and see the family. So it is multifaceted going back for ASLD. So you said, and I think this is the point, once as a founder, you start fundraising, you never stop fundraising. Let's educate our listeners a little bit on what that feels like. Yeah. Well, I'll take a 10,000 foot view before going into the nitty gritty. But there was a quote I heard once. I don't remember who said it, but they said that the social responsibility of a company is to in, it increases profits. And, you know, while not everything is a for-profit corporation, increasing profits can also mean increasing impact. So I think that that is something that, that, that I've taken very seriously since day one. We started with grants from the National Science Foundation. Then we started with a really early stage, I would say, friends and family round where professors of ours came and wanted to invest and really go through very early, small proof of principle studies. Then we went into a pre-seed round and now we're in a larger seed to get us through the next 12 to 24 months. I can go more in depth into any of those and, and the nuances involved. But one thing that I think is really important to note is that especially in the biotech space, data is everything. So it doesn't, you don't need to raise one to five million to show that your tools are functional and efficacious. What you need 
need to do is ask yourself what data you need to show in the smallest possible way that what you're doing is functional and superior to other tools on on the market and why. So we designed these micro studies very early on to show investors and collaborators that, hey, this is functional. This is functional both directly in the liver as well as in peripheral blood. And here's the data we have to show that this supports our hypotheses and our claims. And then we'll take that information and say, hey, we've shown that this is efficacious. Now let's replicate this study in a a larger sample size. And it doesn't need to be full-blown 1,000 patients, but something just a little bit more intentional and small to show Advocacy. What kind of sample size do you feel, in your case at least, you needed to get to or you will need to get to to be ready really for prime time and to step up? And how did you determine that number? And is there anything else that makes that study special people should understand? Where we are today is we've done analyses on several hundred patient samples. That is a combination of both direct liver tissue as well as blood samples, all inclusive. So our next study is going to be a 500 patient study to show efficacy for both of our two tools. We're developing two tools, one that can differentiate simple statuses from NASH, and then a second tool based off of a separate set of biomarkers that can stage liver fibrosis on a four-stage sliding scale. So what we're doing now is we're doing a verification study where we're expanding the sample size to 500 patient samples. And without introducing bias, we're still conducting whole genome sequencing in this data set. We know what our top 30 candidate biomarkers are for each of our two tools. We know what the top five candidate biomarkers are. But before we are married to those candidate biomarkers, we want the data to speak for itself. So this 500 patient study will allow us to discern which of these biomarkers is reproducible, replicatable from our previous studies. And a couple last points there reflect both biological relevance to other genes, proteins, and transcriptional expression that has been uh, reported for other, let's say, therapeutics and other findings in the NASH and fibrosis space. So the 500, this will be a pivotal study for us. And then next year, we'll start recruiting for about a 2,000 patient study that will last about one to two years. As somebody with real fascination in behavioral economics and commercial psychology, what's the magic to 500 and 2,000? What we did was... So the 500 was actually based off of a study that, and I'm blanking on the name of the study at this moment, but there was a targeted epigenetic sequencing assessment for hepatocellular carcinoma that was approved through FDA breakthrough designation. They had 450 patient samples in this study, of which only 200 had various stages of hepatocellular carcinoma. So what we wanted was to match that study based off of what the FDA outlined for the sample size and powering of tools for liver cancer. So we saw that and we said, okay, for our pivotal study, we're going to mimic this sample size and mimic this power. However, we know and we're keenly aware that there are various underlying causes of fatty liver disease. Think of it like this. A 17-year-old Hispanic female with diabetes and obesity may or may not have the same biomarkers at the same concentration of a 72-year-old European male with diabetes and obesity. And in one sense, in one side of the argument, there's a thousand ways to cut the pie. But 
But in another place, in another means to tackle this challenge, there's also a logical way to address this problem. So we powered this study to ensure efficacy in these discrete patient populations. So the 2000 is not random. It's been powered by what we need in certain age, race, ethnicity, underlying causes, and things of that sort to ensure efficacy in these discrete patient populations. What you often see is that biomarkers in very early stages of development from small sample size have really great sensitivity and specificity all throughout all the studies that they conduct. But then when they go to conduct real-world analysis and they actually get into the clinic, that drops off, the AROC drops off by 10, 15, even 20 plus percent. And it is a testament to poor research and development methods that don't reflect the patient populations that you will serve when you get to the market. So the 2000 is based off of intentional design methods that are powered to ensure efficacy in these discrete patient populations. Pardon, the, the stat nerd in me has a real simple question, which is, so did you build a 2000 by stratifying sample for specific subpopulations, or are you going for 2000 and assuming that on the random distribution, you wind up with what you need or somewhere in the middle? The, the latter, yeah. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded the conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a more typical tsunami episode, this one focusing on patient screening and women's health issues. Until then, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.